An investigation has begun into the helicopter crash in Ukraine that killed the interior minister and other senior officials today. The crash happened near a kindergarten. At least 17 people are dead, children among them. We'll get the latest from Ukraine this hour on this Wednesday, January 18th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Dr. David Kessler, the chief scientist who oversaw the creation and distribution of the coronavirus vaccine, is stepping down. He'll tell us why. The Justice Department is ordering City National Bank to pay $31 million over accusations of racially discriminatory mortgage practices. There's targeted, intentional opposition to black home ownership since the Emancipation Proclamation. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street way down today. That's coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Many employees at Microsoft are getting some difficult news today. They're among 10,000 people being laid off. NPR's Bobby Allen reports the tech giant says it's preparing for growing economic uncertainty. Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella told employees, quote, some parts of the world are in a recession and other parts are anticipating one. And so Nadella says about 5% of its global workforce will be cut. That adds up to 10,000 employees who will be let go. The news follows other big tech companies like Amazon and Facebook parent company Meta making massive layoffs. The previously announced cuts to office workers at Amazon start today. Like other tech companies pulling back, Nadella also blamed overhiring during the pandemic. Microsoft is expected to keep expanding in some areas, including artificial intelligence, which Nadella says is the next major wave of computing. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Historic inauguration in Maryland today. Wes Moore has been sworn in as the state's first black governor. It's impossible not to think about our past and our path. We're blocks away from the Annapolis docks, where so many enslaved people arrived in this country against their will. And we are standing in front of a capital that was built by their hands. Big names were on hand for the momentous occasion, including Oprah Winfrey. The media mogul recalled a particular video chat with Moore two years ago. I could see the CNN screen behind him, and that's the first I knew of the invasion of the Capitol. So then I turned it on. I go, look at what's happening. You want to run in this climate? And he said, exactly. Exactly. So I said, go for it, and I'll be here if you need me. Maryland's new lieutenant governor, Aruna Miller, also made history today as the first woman of color in the state to serve in that office. Authorities in Ukraine are investigating the cause of a helicopter crash near the capital, Kiev. All on board the chopper were killed, including the country's interior minister. Emergency services also report casualties on the ground, including at least one child. Here's NPR's Joanna Kakissis. Ukraine's interior minister, Denis Monastirsky, and his deputies died when the helicopter they were in crashed into a kindergarten in the town of Brovary outside Kyiv. Several children are among the injured. Monastirsky's duties included overseeing law enforcement. The head of the national police, Ihor Klimenko, has been appointed to serve as acting interior minister. President Volodymyr Zelensky observed a moment of silence during his remarks delivered virtually at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. The mayor of Brovary has declared a three-day mourning period for the victims of the crash. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Lviv. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell made history today when she took the oath of office. The former Boston City Councilor and legal counsel is the first black woman elected to statewide office in Massachusetts. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports on today's ceremony at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. Speaking before a crowd of about a 1,000 people, Campbell said she hopes to be an example. My hope is that every day women and young people who look like me and see the incredible work of this office will feel less invisible, despairing, and lonely. As someone who grew up in public housing and had family members involved in the criminal legal system, Campbell said her personal as well as professional experience will inform her work. Among the issues she pledged to work on are elder fraud, gun law enforcement, protecting reproductive rights, and increasing accountability and transparency in correctional facilities and the juvenile justice system. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The Boston Celtics are mourning the death of former player and coach Chris Ford. Ford's family says the 74-year-old died yesterday. He suffered a heart attack earlier this month. Ford played guard for the Celts from 1978 to 82. He even made the first three-point shot in NBA history. That was in 1979. After Ford's retirement, he became an assistant coach for the Celts and eventually its head coach from 1990 to 1995. The Celtics released a statement today saying Ford was a versatile player who made his mark every step of the way. Cambridge-based Moderna is one step closer to releasing its first-ever vaccine for the respiratory illness known as RSV. The company said this week clinical trials found the shot to be 84 percent effective in people 60 and older. Boston University global health professor Christopher Gill says it's important to vaccinate seniors. This could be very practical for the elderly and generally and particularly for elderly who have problems with their lungs and really can't afford to have uh, the metaphorical punch in the nose due to RSV infections in the winter. Moderna plans to file for federal approval of the vaccine in July. It's still conducting trials on its RSV vaccine for children. In the forecast, we're seeing the last of the unbridled sunshine today. Tonight, down around 32 degrees, partly sunny skies tomorrow. Clouds on the march later in the day. Highs in the low 40s tomorrow. Could have rain tomorrow night, mixing with some snow on Friday. No clear indication just yet of how much should be on the ground, possibly just an inch or so. 48 degrees now in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. A helicopter carrying Ukraine's interior minister and other senior officials crashed outside Kyiv today, killing at least 14 people. The helicopter hit a kindergarten, and officials say at least one child is among the dead, with many more wounded. NPR's Lauren Magaki reports from Kyiv. It was a quiet, foggy morning in Brovare, a suburb outside Kyiv. Elena Kolesnikova says she was making coffee when she heard a loud noise. She thought maybe it was an explosion from a drone. Instead, it was the sound of a helicopter crashing into a kindergarten, where children were already inside and had started their school day. Witnesses say after the crash, a fire broke out, the flames reaching several stories into the air. Kalisnikova's granddaughter, now grown, once attended the now-destroyed school. 
аж дыхание перекрыло. Да, ужасно, страшно. She says when she found out what happened to the school with the children inside of it, she couldn't breathe because of the horror. Clutching her chest, she watches as rescuers climb through smoldering debris. The school walls and windows are blown out, burn marks scorch the walls that are left intact, and pieces of the downed helicopter are strewn across the playground. Inga Lichenko also lives nearby. She came to see the remnants of the school, pushing her two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Elizaveta, in a stroller. Lichenko was planning on enrolling her daughter here, but now she's thinking she'll wait until the war is over before she sends her daughter to any school. It's very frightening what happened. She says it was very foggy, and she doesn't know why they decided to fly a helicopter in such weather. The cause of the crash is still unknown, and the investigation may take some time. The helicopter was taking Interior Minister Denis Monasterski and his colleagues to a hot spot near the front lines, according to officials. Ministry of Interest is uh, deeply involved in uh, protecting uh, Ukraine. Helena Yanchenko is a member of parliament. She worked with Monasterski when he was a member there. And she says he was the best minister of interior Ukraine has ever had. In his role, Monasterski oversaw the law enforcement, the police force, state emergency services. National Guard, uh, border guards, and he was coordinating all these efforts in order to protect Ukraine from aggressor. The government has already appointed a new interim minister, the head of the national police, Ihor Klemenko. Yanchenko says it's a smart move. As of the ministry, I'm, I'm pretty much like calm and Mr. Klemenko is like, he knows the system, he knows the situation, so uh, it will not help Russia. Still, she says Monasterski's death is a huge loss. She describes him as a man of strong values who dreamt about building a better Ukraine. He leaves behind a wife and two children. Lauren Migaki, NPR News, Kyiv. Operation Warp Speed is coming to a stop. That program oversaw the creation and distribution of hundreds of millions of doses of the coronavirus vaccine. It started under the Trump administration, and for the last two years, Dr. David Kessler has led the effort, though without the space age name. He is now leaving the Biden administration, which signals that the federal vaccination program is also winding down. Dr. Kessler, good to have you back on All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. I said this program distributed hundreds of millions of doses of the vaccine, but the distribution actually happened happened at pharmacies and clinics all over the country. So how would you describe what your role was from this perch in Washington, helping to make sure that vaccines got to people all over the country? One of my um, colleagues wrote me an email yesterday, and I think he summed up what we did. He said, you you created a goal-oriented culture of cooperation to put the vaccines, boosters, and antivirals within easy reach of the American people. I think that there's a team. It wasn't me alone, but that goal-oriented process of cooperation. You know, there's great agencies at HHS. There's FDA, NIH, CDC, and we were sort of the glue. Can you tell us about a specific challenge or a specific conversation that was something you had to solve? in order to get the vaccine to a particular place or group of people? 
I remember very early on, uh, January uh, 2020, and one of the manufacturers, they'll go unnamed, I remember the night where the CEO said, we're going to sell these vaccines in the commercial market, go private with these vaccines. And I just looked at him, it was over Zoom, and I said, that's not going to happen. Hmm. What power did you have to keep that from happening? I'm not sure exactly what legal authority I had, but the thing that I did know that I had was the president of the United States. Uh, he would back us. <laughs> and so did the CEO just back down? I think uh, the proof is that everyone in this country uh, had access to the vaccine, not just people uh, who could pay or could afford. It was within you know, five miles of it, 95% were within five miles. It was easy. Sure, there were a couple of lines early on, but then I think it's one of the great historical achievements. Uh, I don't think in the history of public health, I don't think we'll ever see this kind of effort uh, again. You said everybody has had access to the vaccine. Not everybody has taken advantage of that access. In fact, only 16% of Americans have gotten an updated booster. Something like 78% of Americans have had at least one dose of the vaccine. But why do you think that booster number is so low? You know, just, just stepping back, I saw our job is to make it available, hmm. to make sure it was easily accessible. For you anybody. weren't the marketers. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I just wanted to make sure that it was available, uh, available equitably. You know, we really did close the gap for uh, disadvantaged and vulnerable communities. It was one of the remarkable stories early on. But you're right. Um, the uptake is not uh, where it should be. Uh, there's still considerable virus out there. Look, uh, you know, I think that it really is a matter of individual choice. People are making uh, their decisions. So I think I understand the country wants to move on, but the tools are out there. If you don't want to have serious uh, complications or hospitalization or death, uh, the virus is not going away. But the tools, they're not perfect, but they're pretty good. And so can you describe going forward what to you the ideal world of vaccinations would look like? Would this be something like a flu shot that people get once a year or every six months? Would there be an innovation that allows one vaccine to deal with any future iterations of the disease? Like, what do you imagine? There's a VRPAC meeting. That's the Vaccine Advisory Committee that FDA has coming up at the end of the month, and they're going to discuss this. I think there's, you know, a wish you know, that maybe we could uh, make uh, COVID vaccines fit the kind of schedule we have for flu. Coming together in the spring to decide on the strain and in the fall, the vaccine becomes available. That works for flu. Uh, that's a seasonal virus. And while there's seasonality components of COVID, uh, it's not just uh, in the fall. So the question remains whether the virus is going to let us fit it into a schedule that we want, or whether, in fact, uh, we're going to see surges. And the question is whether people over 65 will need to be protected, not just in the fall, but at other times. So I still think there's a great deal of uncertainty. There's right now low political will to keep investing in vaccines. There's low demand for people to get updated boosters. And so how wide do you think the gap is between the future you would like to see and the reality we're living in? 
I think there is support across the aisle for what we did here to accelerate vaccines and drugs. But then why hasn't Congress met the funding demands that the administration has asked for? Uh, let's, you know, I, I think I mean, what I would love to see is to take the lessons that we learned out of warp speed and apply it to not only future pandemic issues, but to cancer, to neurodegenerative diseases. I think that there still is strong support for that. We know how to accelerate therapies for serious and life-threatening diseases. And I think there is across the aisle uh, a desire to do that. And then the other half of the puzzle is, you know, the best tool is only good if somebody uses it. And if there isn't demand for uptake of new vaccines, that's a problem, right? Sure. But, but, but there are also, you know, there, there were some very positive numbers that came out of this. Some 226 million people got the primary series. That's a lot of people. That's some 80%. I think that's phenomenal. Uh, this is a very diverse country. N no question that vaccines became uh, polarized. But if there's any skeptic out there, Go look at the pictures of China today, their hospitals, their emergency rooms, their clinics. Our vaccines were one of the major reasons that we don't look like that now. That's Dr. David Kessler, who has been chief science officer for the Biden administration's COVID-19 response. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, Microsoft says it will cut 10,000 jobs with layoff notices going out today. That story in 15 minutes on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College's online graduate certificate in school leadership, a DEI focused principal prep program. Apply for summer at williamjames.edu. Stocks took a real dive today across the board. The Dow fell more than one and three quarters percent. That's 614 points. It finally settled at 33,297. S&P posted its worst day in more than a month. It lost more than one and a half percent to close at 39.29. The Nasdaq dropped over one and a quarter percent to finish at 10,957. 100 workers at Boston-based internet provider Story will be out of a job next week. That's a quarter of its workforce. Starry announced the cuts today, saying it needs to reduce its expenses and focus on core customers. It laid off half its employees last October. The company has struggled since it went public last year. Its stock price has fallen 99 percent since then. Business news coming up at 6.30 on Marketplace. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. Proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. 
Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Pretty beautiful out there today. Clear skies from today should last through the night tonight. Temperatures falling to about freezing. Tomorrow should begin with bright skies that may gradually dim as the day progresses. Clouds may be a late afternoon shower, only reaching about 42 tomorrow. 48 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. China has reported almost 60,000 deaths from COVID since early December. But those who lost loved ones during this time period say that's not the full story and that their families' pandemic-related tragedies have gone unacknowledged. So NPR's Emily Fang asked friends and family to submit remembrances of those who died over the last month. Here are the lives they lived. Zhang Qing says his grandmother was just like so many grandmothers in China who doted on their families. Like many women of her generation, she was also uneducated. Her parents took her to a remote city as a child after heeding government calls to move west, and she never learned to read Chinese characters. Her biggest wish was to see 17-year-old Zhang go to college, which he did. When I was young, my grandmother was the one who taught me how to sound outspoken Chinese. She always told me she regretted not finishing school and that she was illiterate. She dreamed that I would study hard and be happy. Zhang was hoping to see her this Lunar New Year this weekend, after months of COVID lockdowns kept them apart. But she caught COVID in mid-December and died 10 days later. Yet she was not part of the official COVID death toll. Her official cause of death was heart failure. The next time Zhang saw her was at her funeral. Had the country not screwed up its COVID policies, she would have received proper medical care and she would have been fine. That's Karen Woods, remembering her 94-year-old grandmother who died at home on Christmas. Not of COVID, but of a minor heart condition that went untreated as hospitals stopped taking patients during the search. Wood says her grandmother knew how to have fun. She joined a dance troupe in her retirement and organized field trips. And in the bitterness of her death, that's what Woods wants to remember, her grandmother's playful spirit. She went through a civil war in China. And I think that's one of the most important lessons I've taken from her, is that you just have to make the best out of the most impossible situation. China has since rolled back nearly all of its COVID policies as a wave of infections rolls unchecked through the country. One Chinese university estimates 900 million people have been infected. But as late as mid-December, some parts of the country were still under lockdown. Controls so severe that the Uyghur writer and poet Abdullah Sawut starved to death in the Xinjiang region, unable to leave his home for food or for blood pressure medication. The 72-year-old had already been weakened by a stint in prison, part of the Chinese state's roundup of prominent Uyghur intellectuals and entrepreneurs. He chose to be alone. He chose to be not mainstream. He completely refused propaganda, any kind of propaganda. And um, 
That's why I love him so much. Writer Abdueli Ayyub remembers Sawood's legacy. He says Sawood was a genius at poetic improvisation, the author of several novels, untranslated, about Uyghur resistance fighters. And he was a poet who wrote about Sufi Islam and of young love. Of course, he wrote a lot about love. Ayub once visited Sawu in his Xinjiang home. He was shocked to find a shabby house nearly empty of furniture. And we asked him, how do you write? Because there is no desk and there is no laptop and anything. And he said, I wrote on the floor. I wrote when I'm lying down. Writing is part of how Jiwei Xiao, a writer and literature professor at Fairfield University, is processing the sudden death of her mother from COVID in late December. Her mother could be distant, but Xiao later learned she'd come from a family that prized sons, not daughters. So almost as soon as she was born, she was abandoned. And as Xiao grew up and moved to the U.S., her bond with her mother strengthened. When she visited me and she was just picking the you know, the books from my shelf and started to read. So later on, I thought, probably I got this love for literature from my mom instead of my dad. Her mother loved cooking and walking among the trees. And the last time Xiao saw her mother was the summer before the pandemic in China. I hugged her as I always did. And she was so frail. And suddenly I was just overwhelmed by sadness. And maybe I thought, how many times am I going to see her? Or maybe I will never see her. She never did see her again. The huge surge of infections this past December came so quickly, her mother had no time to prepare. The saddest part about her death is she waited for us. Waited for her two daughters to visit her again in China, something impossible the last three years because China banned most inbound travelers. She held out until the winter solstice. So my mom died on the longest night of the year. It is also the crossroads in terms of season. I hope the days will become longer and things will become better. But before that, Xiao thinks many families are still going through the darkest of times as infections continue in China and more deaths happen unacknowledged. Emily Fang, NPR News. ChatGPT is a buzzy new AI technology that can write research papers or poems that come out sounding like a real person did the work. Some teachers are understandably concerned, but one student has an idea on how to help. Janet Ujung Lee from NPR's Education Desk reports. Teachers around the country don't know what to do. Since ChatGPT launched in November, many say they're worried this powerful technology could do their students' homework. Some school districts, including New York City and Los Angeles, have blocked access. But Edward Tian thinks that's the wrong way to go. I'm not for these blanket bans on ChatGPT usage because that does really nothing. Students can get around it um, just like you can use ChatGPT on your Wi-Fi at home. Tian is a 22-year-old computer science student at Princeton University. Just a month after ChatGPT got teachers worried, he built a bot to help them. It's called GPT-0. You can copy and paste any text, and it'll analyze each sentence, each word, and judge how likely it is that a real person or a fake person wrote it. 
and teachers can you know make their own decision of like wow this essay is like 100% ChatGPT written or this essay is like uses ChatGPT where it really made sense to help influence thought that works teachers can make their own informed decisions Tian says having a handle on what is and isn't written by AI down to the percentage of an essay could help teachers who are intimidated by this new technology feel more in charge there are other AI detection tools out there too Tian wrote his as a winter break passion project. He shared it on Twitter and was surprised to hear quickly from many teachers and even college officials who wanted to learn more. My own high school principal reached out. My own high school English teacher, Ms. Stoika, reached out, and uh, admissions officers have reached out saying they're interested. Tian is now building a community of educators and students who want to figure out what to do with AI in the classroom. He believes instead of cheating. AI might be able to help teach and learn responsibly. Responsibly means somewhere in the middle. It can't be like students don't write any homework and don't do any homework anymore.、Uh, but it also can't be like okay, we completely can't use these new technologies and are just ignoring them. So it has to be somewhere in the middle. Students should learn how to use AI to their benefit. Tian says because the technology is here to stay. Janet Ujangli, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is ninety point nine WBUR. Coming up, the UK government blocks a bill to allow people in Scotland to self-ID their gender. Scotland's first minister vows to fight to get the bill passed. In the forecast, mostly clear skies overnight tonight. About thirty-two for a low. Tomorrow should reach about forty-two degrees with sunshine in the early hours and clouds moving in for the second part of the day. Could have showers tomorrow after five o'clock. Then the rain sticking around tomorrow night through the day on Friday. Maybe mixing with a little bit of snow on Friday. It's now four thirty. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by EverSource. EverSource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family, and because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit eversource.com. Representative George Santos is accused of fabricating almost every aspect of his life. The more and more you lie, the less and less activity in the amygdala because you kind of get used to it, and you don't feel bad anymore. Why do uncontrolled fabulists get that way? Go beyond the little lies we might all tell to cutting all ties with the truth. That's on point tonight at seven on ninety point nine WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Condolences are pouring in after a helicopter carrying Ukraine's interior minister and other government officials crashed into a kindergarten early today in the capital of Kiev. Dozens of people were killed, including a child on the ground. The interior minister was in charge of Ukraine's police and emergency services. He's one of the most senior officials to die since Russia invaded Ukraine nearly 11 months ago. Ukraine's president. Volodymyr Zelensky, speaking to the World Economic Forum in Switzerland, said the world must not hesitate any longer when it comes to dealing with Russian aggression. This is how much can be said in a matter of minutes. This is how much can be understood in a matter of minutes. The world will overcome again. The time is high to make it happen faster. Slava Ukraini. The crash came on a foggy morning in Kiev. There's no immediate word yet on whether the crash was an accident or war-related. The Labor Department has fined Amazon for failing to provide a safe working environment at three of its facilities, as NPR's 
Andrea Shu tells us the investigation was triggered by high injury rates at Amazon warehouses. Federal safety inspectors concluded that the twisting, bending, and long reaches that Amazon workers perform as much as nine times per minute puts them at high risk of injuring their lower back and spinal discs, as well as their hips, shoulders, and hands. Doug Parker leads the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. While Amazon has developed impressive systems to make sure its customers' orders are shipped efficiently and quickly, the company has failed to show the same level of commitment to protecting the safety and well-being of its workers. Still, Amazon faces just over $60,000 in fines, the maximum allowed under law. But Parker noted that the company must also act to reduce the hazards. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is putting together a proposal for rent control in the city. Rent control is one of the progressive mayor's key campaign promises. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, the plan would cap annual rent hikes at 10 percent. The proposal would allow landlords to increase rent in line with inflation and exempt buildings opened in the past 15 years. The plan's details are still in the works. It was first reported by the Boston Globe. Northeastern University housing policy expert Barry Bluestone says the proposal reconciles tenant rights and developer interests. Relative to proposals of the past, this is a gentle proposal for rent control to protect uh, many existing residents from exorbitant increases in rent. Rent control is banned in Massachusetts, so Wu's plan would need approval from the city council, state legislature, and governor. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. It's swearing-in day for four of the state's constitutional officers. Attorney General Andrea Campbell took the oath of office this afternoon as the first black woman to become the state's top lawyer. The Roxbury native and former Boston city councilor says she will prioritize protecting seniors from fraud, defending the state's gun laws, and expanding access to abortion. Earlier today, Secretary of State Bill Galvin and Treasurer Deb Goldberg were sworn in. Galvin said he will push to expand civics education in school and urge lawmakers to pass same-day voter registration. This evening, Diana Tazoglio will take the oath as the state's auditor. And local doctors are warning parents against giving adult cold medication to kids amid the national shortage of children's Tylenol and Motrin. Shannon Manzi is the Director of Safety and Quality at Boston Children's Hospital's Department of Pharmacy. I know that folks are looking for acetaminophen and ibuprofen, which are components of the mixed cold medicines. But as the FDA has said before, those are really not safe for the young children. Manzi suggests parents looking for children's cold medicine check smaller pharmacies and corner stores or ask friends if they have extra supplies. Manzi says she's beginning to see supplies increase as rates of respiratory illnesses such as flu and RSV drop. After a sunny and mildish day, we should have clear skies tonight, down around 32 degrees, partly sunny skies tomorrow, clouds on the march later in the day, highs in the low 40s. Should have rain tomorrow night, mixing with some snow on Friday, no clear indication yet of how much is possible, maybe just an inch or so. 47 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Microsoft said today it's laying off 10,000 of its employees. The company is the latest tech giant to make major cuts to its staff. And this layoff is the latest to stoke fears about a possible recession this year. NPR's Bobby Allen is reporting on what's driving the shakeup in tech. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Ari. Another day, another huge round of tech layoffs. What's going on? Exactly. So we've heard about Twitter, Facebook, Amazon, the list goes on. Tech companies are having a bit of a reckoning right now. Remember, the pandemic supercharged the tech industry. You know, we all moved more of our lives online and the tech industry went on a hiring spree to catch up with the demand. But now high inflation, a pullback in corporate spending and other factors has economists seriously worried about a recession, as you mentioned. And companies like Microsoft say they have no choice but to slam the brakes. How did Microsoft explain this decision to lay off 10,000 people? Yeah, in a note to employees, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella pointed to the number of people Microsoft has hired in recent years. Since 2019 alone, it added 75,000 people to its workforce, which, of course, is extraordinary, right? Now, do the layoffs mean Microsoft is in some kind of trouble? I don't think so, Ari. I mean, Microsoft is one of the most valuable companies in the world. It employs more than 200,000 people. But Nadella is basically reading the tea leaves here and saying, well, there might be a slowdown. So we're bracing for that and now cutting 10,000 jobs. So as these tech workers get laid off in companies across the sector, what do their prospects look like after they're let go? Better than most. One survey found that eight out of 10 techies who are laid off find a new tech job within three months of starting their search. So that is to say the tech industry is downsizing in some parts, but also hiring in other parts. Something else to note, tech relies heavily on immigrant workers. And when you're on a visa that is tied to your job and then you're laid off, the clock starts ticking for you to quickly find another employer sponsor. So that's causing a scramble for a lot of people. Hmm. And for Microsoft specifically, you said it doesn't look like this company is on the rocks. What does it look like? Yeah, it looks like they really want to focus on two things, AI and video games. The AI tools that have been taking the internet by storm, you know, ChatGPT and this image generator Dolly. Well, those tools were developed by a firm called OpenAI in Silicon Valley, and Microsoft is one of its biggest investors. And Microsoft is talking now about how this AI can be used in more of its products, um, and they're really focusing on that. Another big bet, though, is video games. Uh, Microsoft already has a sizable video game business with Xbox, but it's now trying to acquire video game giant Activision Blizzard. That is now being challenged by federal regulators. But whatever happens there, Microsoft sees video gaming as a major part of its future. I mentioned fears of a recession. Does the tech industry slow down? Tell us anything more broadly about the economy as a whole. Yeah, that is the question right now. Look, there are some experts who say the tech industry's pullback is specific to Silicon Valley, but the tech world is seen as an economic bellwether, right? I mean, it's a huge employer. It's a multi-trillion dollar industry. These companies are on the cutting edge. And as we know, they intersect with just about every other part of the economy. So, you know, it's just hard to imagine a tech downturn not having some broader sweeping effects here. But uh, if it does, we'll be following it, Ari. NPR's Bobby Allen, thanks for your reporting. Thank you.
A history-making settlement addresses a small piece of the racism that has afflicted the home financing system in this country for generations. The Justice Department is ordering City National Bank to pay $31 million over accusations of redlining in Los Angeles. DOJ says the bank avoided underwriting mortgages in L.A.'s majority black and Latino neighborhoods between 2017 and 2020. Now, here to talk about what the settlement means for L.A. County is Mark Alston from the National Association of Real Estate Brokers, which advocates for black real estate professionals and communities. Welcome. Uh, thank you. It's good to be here. Good to have you. Okay, so Mark, when you first heard about this settlement, I'm just curious, what went through your mind? It was a surprise to me. $31 million sounds like a lot individually, but for the county of L.A., uh, 10 million people, it's a low number. Well, I was just going to ask you about the number because this has been touted as the largest settlement ever between the federal government and a bank over redlining. Practices that still continued even after they were outlawed in the late 1960s. So when you think about the massive loss of generational wealth that has resulted for people of color because of redlining, even in just L.A. alone, how does $31 million stack up to you? 844,000 black residents in L.A. County, maybe 300,000 households. City National Bank's founded in 1954. This is only from 2017 to 2020. They weren't redlining before. Mm -hmm. This doesn't sound like a lot. Yeah. Well, we should note that City National Bank says it disagrees with the Justice Department's allegations, but that it still does support efforts to ensure equal credit access for everyone. We talked to you back in 2021 for our series on Black home ownership in America, and you took us through a lot of the barriers that prevent so many Black people in this country from even owning a home beyond getting rejected for a bank loan. Can you just refresh us with a couple examples? You know, if you're going to talk about equal opportunity and equal access, then you have to have equal pay. When the average black family is worth 3600 and the average white family is worth 147000 and then you design a housing financial system based on down payment and debt ratios, then you've designed a disparate system that disparages black families, mm -hmm. whether it's by law or by tradition, there's opposition to black home ownership, and it's reflected in the numbers. It's not because black people want to be tenants. We want ownership just like everybody else. And the mark of success in our community is home ownership. Right. A lot of this money is going to go to a loan subsidy fund with a small amount going to advertising and financial education in the communities that were impacted by this bank's practices. Now, if you could decide where this settlement money is going, this $31 million, I'm just curious, Mark, where would you put that money? Well, it, easy for me, down payment and closing cost assistance, as well as interest rate buy-down. Uh, there's 500000 for advertising. That's important to let the community know what is available. 500000 for consumer financial education. It depends how it's set up. Our ancestors bought property, signed the deed with an X, paid it off and passed it down. Financial literacy is important, but intent and priority is even more important. Do you expect more lawsuits like this, even bigger settlements to come? 
let's not even talk about lawsuits. Let's talk about changed behavior. Mm -hmm. If they make it a problem to conduct these actions, then hopefully the lawsuits will continue, but the behavior will outpace the lawsuits. But we'd like to have success, a change in attitude, a change in opportunity to have the American dream be available to all Americans, regardless of what you look like or where you came from. Mark Alston of the National Association of Real Estate Brokers, thank you very much for joining us again. That's my pleasure. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The U.K. government has initiated a constitutionally significant clash with the government in Scotland when Prime Minister Rishi Sunak decided to block legislation that was recently passed by Scotland's parliament. Now, the conflict centers around a new law focused on gender identity, but the implications for Britain's constitutional future may be even more significant. To understand this in a little more detail, we're joined now by London-based journalist Willem Marks. Hey, Willem. Hey. So basically, what would this new Scottish law actually do? Well, it's designed to make it easier for individuals born in Scotland or those who qualify as resident of Scotland to legally identify as a specific gender of their choice without having to undergo a medical examination. The government in Scotland will issue an individual with what's known as a gender recognition certificate, which as a document allows that person to change their legal sex on their birth certificate, as well as their marriage certificate and even their death certificate. The laws intended also to speed up the process whereby an individual can change the gender with which they identify. And it will also lower the age at which people can start this process to 16. Okay, and then how does all of that now set off an issue with the UK constitution? Well, what this law would mean is that someone either born in Scotland or living there for a period of time would have to meet a lower threshold to change their gender legally than someone born or resident in another part of the UK, like England, or Wales, or Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. And what the government of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has essentially argued this week is that such a disparity would undermine UK-wide legislation on gender equality. Someone with a Scottish gender recognition certificate might, in theory, be able to use that document for various reasons in the UK without having undergone a medical examination, whereas someone from, say, England would still require an exam. A person could essentially be one gender legally on one side of the Scottish-English border and then another Mm. gender legally a mile away across that border. And so the UK government's issued an order that allows the UK, the, the British Parliament in Westminster in London, to prevent the legislation passed by the Scottish Parliament in Edinburgh from becoming law. So interesting. What is the relationship like between these two different parliaments? Like how unusual is this kind of dispute? Well, kind of a a brief history lesson, I guess. You've got to go back to Tony Blair being prime minister in the late 1990s. It was his government that instituted reforms that created a Scottish parliament. It would allow it to have control over very specific areas of life in Scotland, like healthcare, like education. But with the caveat that if the parliament in Scotland tried to pass a law that would impact existing UK-wide laws, the government down in London could essentially block them. This is the first time 
a UK government's ever issued one of those orders. Oh. And so there are ramifications for the relationship between these two parliaments that may ultimately, I guess, be decided in the country's courts. Okay, so that's kind of the legal landscape. But what about the politics surrounding this whole situation? Well, much of the ruling majority in the Scottish Parliament is controlled by the Scottish National Party. They want Scotland to be independent of the rest of the UK. It's been a long-running campaign. And although this legislation was massively polarising, even when it narrowly passed through the Scottish Parliament, it it sort of split up the various political parties in that Parliament, the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Surgeon, says this decision by Rishi Sunak undermines Scotland's democracy. She called it essentially an attack on the Scottish Parliament. And the issue, she said, would almost certainly end up in court. Meanwhile, the UK government saying it did not take this decision lightly. And in fact, it's essentially left open the possibility the legislation could go back to the Scottish Parliament, could get amended, and this dispute itself could then, it says, end. That is Willem Marx in London. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. In sports, the Bruins are in New York tonight to face the Islanders. Face-offs at 7.30 tonight. Celtics play tomorrow. Longtime NBA player and coach Chris Ford has died. He won a championship title with the Celts in 1981. He also made the first three-point shot in the history of the NBA. Chris Ford was head coach from 1990 to 95, assistant coach for the Celts for seven seasons, helping to coach former teammates Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, and Robert Parrish to two titles. He's one of four former Celtics to have won championships as both a player and coach, joining Bill Russell, Tommy Heinsohn, and Casey Jones. In the forecast, look for clear skies overnight tonight. Should get down around uh, 32 degrees overnight tonight. Then tomorrow, beginning with some sunshine gradually dimming as the day progresses. Clouds may be late afternoon showers, only reaching about 42 degrees tomorrow. 48 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 4.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Cambridge Naturals, offering in-person and online events, including herbal classes, meditations, and more. Calendar at cambridgenaturals.com events. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. There's a new category in this year's Grammy Awards for Best Spoken Word Poetry Album. And one of the nominees is a voice we've been hearing for decades. I'm seeing where Black is beautiful is not a slogan. It's our mantra reminding us that radical self-love is the most revolutionary act that we can imbue. That's actor and director Malcolm Jamal Warner on a track called Black Fist Beautiful. It's from his Grammy-nominated fourth album, Hiding in Plain View. Now, most of Warner's fans are probably more familiar with his acting, like his breakthrough role as Theo Huxtable on The Cosby Show, 
or more recently as Dr. AJ Austin in the medical drama The Resident. But he says there is a simple reason he's still acting and directing on top of writing and performing poetry. Because I need them all. There was a point when I was about 22 or 23 that really opened my eyes to the politics of this business. And I remember having the thought, if I keep all of my eggs in both of these uh, acting and directing baskets, this industry is going to break my heart. And it was during that time that I found spoken word. Some of the themes in his poetry are inextricably linked to his acting. Over the years, Warner has been vocal about rejecting roles that perpetuate negative stereotypes about Black folks. And he told me more about how he developed that instinct. I mean, we can start with my father named me after Malcolm X and Ahmad Jamal. Um, <laughs> he was pretty hardcore about making sure that I understood my history. Um, and he did a lot of that through the arts. My dad went to Lincoln University because Langston Hughes went to Lincoln University. So I literally, I, I came out the womb uh, and my life was about poetry. So fast forward, I get to Cosby and the global impact that that show had. I find it difficult to go from a a show that represented so much uh, and did so much for the culture. Uh, It would be a slap in the face to go back and do work that perpetuated those negative stereotypes of black people. It's also really clear that you are thinking about the way that black folks are portrayed in your spoken word album so that means you me we have got to open our eyes and see this country for what it truly is beautifully flawed one could almost describe it really as a love letter to black people and those who love us and want to understand us Yes, this album kind of helps show a path to a self-healing that I think we're all longing for, whether we understand it or not. So I say that this album is, uh, it's for us, it's for Black people, it's for non-Black people who have the foresight enough to see our self-healing as an invitation to explore their own necessary healing. We always persevere. Like descendants of survivors of I'm curious, on this album, which track came together the quickest and which one took the longest for you to feel was complete? Mm, Dope. Track number two uh, was the quickest. Um, I wrote that one in a day. Dope. Um, And that one actually started out as an Instagram challenge. There was a poet, a brother by the name of Black Chakra, and he put this Instagram uh, challenge to other poets about, you know, basically, tell me how dope you are. So really, it's not about the hype, right? It's just about what you like. And I'm like, dope. Like, I come from a mom who, even now, my most bomb Christmas, I was five years old. And she only had enough money to buy me two gifts and yet managed to make me feel so rich. And it really excited me because I hadn't been writing in a, in, in a long time. And we're in, in the middle of the pandemic. So I, ju- I just sat one morning and just started uh, writing it. And that was one of those situations where it just came. 
uh, the poem Hiding in Plain View is the one that uh, took the longest and went through the most changes. Vulnerability can be a scary thing, even when we're on the mend. Black boys boast bravado not to seem broken, and often so do black men. I see you, looking for clues, searching for cues, longing to know what I'm not telling you, as if, as if I'm hiding in plain view. Mm. It was me, um, you know, revealing things about myself. And my wife was really instrumental in pushing me to do that. And she kept pushing me. <laughs> so there was a whole process in finally getting that poem to become what it is. The things we hide about ourselves don't disappear, and some we fear may slip out when least expected. An irony for me is when I wanted to be fully accepted without giving my full self, not feeling safe enough to be vulnerable, I'd lament I was only being loved based on what I thought was safe to present. There's this really confessional nature to that, which I'm sure might be hard to display in a world that quite often does not wrap its arms around our black boys and our black men. Right. When I hear from non-black people who tell me how much that poem resonates with them, it makes me go, ah, great. People are understanding that this is more of a universal theme than may seem on the surface. When we hide parts of ourselves, we are compromising ourselves. We're compromising our souls. And there's a line in, in that particular poem where I say, a compromised soul may let you sleep, but it will, will never, never let, let you rest. rest. Unless you address the parts of you that can't be dressed up with a smile and then I'm fine. So I'm on this quest to embrace a self-love so radical that I honor every aspect of my being, even the broken I'm working to heal. You know, you have been working in some form since you were really young, and I just want to ask you about that longevity. How do you manage to find joy and balance in the various prongs of your career? How do they all work together? Uh, I found music. I became a bass player because through the music and poetry, uh, there are ways that I can express myself that I can't as an actor uh, or a director. And I tend to say that this album in particular, it's my fourth album, uh, but I say it's by far my most important album uh, because it shows ways that we can shift our approach to the way we raise black boys. Honestly, when I look at all of my avenues of expression, I feel ready and excited for the next level of uh, what I do as an actor, artist, uh, and also that next level of my career. We have been speaking with Malcolm Jamal Warner. He's nominated for a Grammy for his spoken word album. It's called Hiding in Plain View. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Juan. I appreciate the time. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. 
More at progressivecommercial.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is 90.9 WBUR. Check back on the news with WBUR again this evening. Tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're heading home from work or making dinner. Tonight, we should get down to about freezing and then rise only to the low 40s tomorrow. Sunny to start out tomorrow, but then clouds moving in along with showers late in the afternoon. This is 90.9 WBUR, 48 degrees now in the Boston area at 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at bu.edu seo. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. As the U.S. creeps toward its debt ceiling and a political standoff over the $31 trillion debt cap takes shape, how have negotiators brokered a deal to raise the debt limit in the past? That's coming up on this Wednesday, January 18th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Illinois police are investigating the attack on a Planned Parenthood facility just two days after abortion protections were signed into law in the state. The Navy has raised its age limit to 41, the oldest of any service. This comes as the military faces a recruiting crisis. For one middle-aged surf instructor, it's a life-changing opportunity. I'm always trying to balance how good this is with can I give something back to deserve this? These stories and Party City files for bankruptcy coming up. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is sending his condolences to Ukraine after a helicopter crash in Kiev's suburbs killed the country's interior minister and 13 others. More from NPR, Scott Detrow. In a written statement, Biden called the crash in Brovery, Ukraine, a heartbreaking tragedy. Nine people on board the helicopter were killed, as well as five on the ground, including one child. U.S. intelligence has worked closely with Ukraine throughout the war, but National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the U.S. doesn't have a sense yet of whether the crash was an accident or an attack from Russian forces. We don't have uh, any uh, notion right now as to what caused that crash to occur. Biden says the U.S. will work to honor the Ukrainian interior minister's legacy through what he called an unfailing partnership with the country. Scott Detrow, NPR News, the White House. Officials with the Federal Emergency Management Agency are in Alabama today going door to door to help victims of last week's storm apply for assistance. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett reports groups providing assistance have seen the number of those needing help double. Pastor Thea Wilson of the Templegate Adventist Church says when the roads began to clear in Selma, twice as many people came to her church for help. Her church is taking donations for impacted families from members of the community. Wilson says that it's been hard explaining to children why they can't go back to their homes that have been destroyed. To see a child dig through the rubble of their home trying to find their toy 
or their bear. That's always the emotional side of it. Many homes are devastated, and some residents are still without electricity as utility crews work to restore power to storm-damaged parts of Selma. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Troy, Alabama. That of the interest rate-setting Federal Reserve is tested positive for the coronavirus. More from NPR's David Gura. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell is experiencing mild symptoms, according to a statement from the central bank, which notes Powell is up-to-date with COVID-19 vaccines and boosters. The Fed's next meeting is scheduled to start at the end of the month on January 31st, and Wall Street expects another interest rate hike, this time an increase of a quarter of a percentage point. According to the Fed, after testing positive today, Powell is working remotely. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Mixed economic numbers out today are weighing on Wall Street at midweek. Retail sales fell by the biggest amount in a year in December, dragged down by falling vehicle sales and a slowing in purchases of a range of other goods. Meanwhile, manufacturing output also declined while the key wholesale inflation figure fell. The 1.1% decline in retail sales, perhaps the most worrisome at a time there are fears the economy may be sliding into recession. The Dow plunged more than 600 points today. The Nasdaq was down 138 points. You're listening to NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is getting closer to publicly unveiling a rent control proposal for the city. Her office has presented the plan to the city's Rent Stabilization Advisory Committee last night. It would tie permissible rent increases to the rate of inflation plus 6 percent. It would also cap increases at 10 percent per year. Newer buildings and smaller owner-occupied properties would be exempt. Exact wording of the proposal could still change. Any plan would have to be approved by the city council and the state legislature. Massachusetts' new attorney general, Andrea Campbell, says she stands on the shoulders of all those who have come before. Campbell took the oath of office today as the first black woman to be elected attorney general in state history. She says her office will deliver on the promise that the next generation will do better than the last. We can ensure that the government is responsive to your needs and do it with integrity, empathy, and urgency. Government must remove barriers and not stand in the way of progress or justice. And as attorney general, I will make sure it does just that. Campbell says she will defend the state's gun laws and vow to protect abortion rights in Massachusetts. The Boston Planning and Development Agency is proposing changes to the way new buildings in downtown Boston and Chinatown are approved. Currently, there are different building height limits in different parts of those neighborhoods. The Boston Business Journal reports the proposed changes would allow new certain height limits to be exceeded if the developer contributes to a new city fund meant to benefit the two neighborhoods. A formal draft of the proposal is expected in late June. And a Cohasset man charged with murdering his wife is being held without bail. At an arraignment today, prosecutors released new evidence they say points to Brian Walsh murdering Anna Walsh. Assistant District Attorney Lynn Beeland says that Brian Walsh searched online for information related to how to dispose a body. Rather than divorce, it is believed that Brian Walsh dismembered Anna Walsh and discarded her body. The bags were laid discarded in Swampscott and contained uh, Anna's property and the items used to clean up, as well as the DNA that was left behind. Anna Walsh has been missing for more than two weeks. Brian Walsh pleaded not guilty today and is expected back in court in February. In the forecast, 
Clear skies from today should last through the night tonight. Temperatures falling to about freezing. Tomorrow should begin with bright skies, although clouds should move in as the day progresses. Maybe a shower in the late afternoon, only reaching about 42 degrees tomorrow. Rain moves in tomorrow night, mixing with some snow on Friday. Highs only in the mid-30s. Shouldn't have too much collecting on the ground. The weekend so far should stay right around the mid-30s and low 40s. 48 degrees now in the Boston area at 507. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fox with the new crime anthology series, Accused. Every week, a new case, a different defendant, and an unpredictable story designed to keep viewers guessing. Accused, series premiere Sunday on Fox. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The economy is driving towards a cliff and my hands are tied. That's essentially the message of a letter from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to congressional leaders. If Congress does nothing, the country will default on its debt sometime this summer, and that would not be good. It's bad. It's just a question of how bad. That's Rohit Kumar. He's a principal at PricewaterhouseCoopers, where he advises businesses on economic and tax policy. Most models suggest a, you know, at least a two-quarter recession in the United States. It's a drop in the market, spike in interest rates, mortgages go up, credit card loans go up, auto loans go up, all of that, you know, to the harm of the general public. To avoid this, Congress will have to raise the nation's debt limit. Here's how Harvard economist Jason Furman explains it. Congress has to give Treasury permission every time it goes out and borrows money, which it has to do quite a lot because we spend more than we collect in taxes. Starting about 100 years ago, they gave a blanket permission that you can borrow up to a certain amount. And you can't borrow past that, even if you're borrowing money to pay bills that Congress itself passed a law saying you have to pay. Right now, the amount is set at $31.4 trillion. Republicans who control the House say they won't agree to raise that debt ceiling without big cuts to federal spending. President Biden says there should be no strings attached, and he won't negotiate on the issue. In her letter to Congress, Yellen said the U.S. will hit that limit tomorrow. It's not an immediate disaster. The Department of Treasury can use what Furman describes as under-the-hood accounting moves to stabilize things. But that will only work so long. This is really more of the starting gun for a process that, you know, five, six months from now, um, we'll get much more serious when those extraordinary measures run out and the government would be faced with defaulting on the debt or defaulting on its other obligations if nothing was passed by Congress. I spoke with Jason Furman along with Rohit Kumar, who you heard earlier, because they sat on opposite sides of the negotiating table during the most perilous standoff over the debt ceiling. That was in 2011 when the government came within hours of a default. Furman was an economic advisor to then-President Obama, and Kumar was a top aide to Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. I wanted to know what their experiences might tell us about what to expect this time around. So thinking back to where we were in 2011, Jason, from your perspective, how close did the country actually get to default? And what was it that finally broke through the ice there? There were moments when I was pretty scared. We had an initial set of meetings that actually Vice President, then Vice President Biden, um, oversaw. And I thought they were very amicable. Everyone got along really well. Um, but they fell apart. 
and the meetings moved into the cabinet room and it was pretty acrimonious and it was pretty ugly um, and I was pretty nervous. But I did know that everyone in that room really understood the gravity of the situation and um, the need to solve it. And so for me, um, that was the ace in the hole that made me think um, that we'd get it done. Now, for that to work, you do need the people in the room to have enough power on the people outside of the room as well. And there I always knew if Senator McConnell agreed to something, he would get Republican senators to agree too. Frankly, I was more nervous about Speaker Boehner and whether the Republicans in the House would follow him. And right now I'd be terrified that even if Speaker McCarthy had a view that he could line up the votes from his caucus to implement that view. So I think I was probably more nervous than Jason. And I distinctly remember Friday night, 72 hours before default, I did not see a path to an agreement. And I said as much to my wife at the time. I said, we are in, I used a word I won't use now, but I expressed a lot of uh, dismay about the possibility of striking an agreement. And it wasn't actually until the following morning that we had kind of the final breakthrough. And then we spent the next couple of days rapidly drafting this into law. And to Jason's point, it's because ultimately everyone in the room understood this had to be done. There was no way around it. And the consequences of failure were just too terrible to actually contemplate. I should say Rohit did carry around a binder um, that on the cover of his binder, it said buy gold. At the time, he told me it was just a joke. But but listening to him now, I'm, I'm nervous. Jason, you alluded to this a bit, but you made the point that one of the reasons why you thought that there could possibly be an agreement is because the people outside the room would follow the lead of the people inside the room. And I'm thinking about what the House looks like today with Speaker McCarthy's slim majority. To both of you, how does that change things? And as from people who have been in these rooms, what do you think that the current makeup of the House and the Senate tells us about how this might go? Look, I think it makes it much harder to have any form of negotiation. I think it's that experience and how close we came to the brink in 2011, how much more difficult a negotiation would be now that has informed um, this administration's approach and frankly, the approach that most administrations take, um, which is that they're not going to negotiate over this. It's a basic piece of business that Congress needs to get done. They need to figure out um, how to get it done. Part of how we did it in 2011 was sort of um, messaging type thing that made it look like it was a little bit more of President Obama's fault. It was a mechanism. Probably Rohit designed it. It was super clever. You know, if you need to do something like that for optics, you know, make the president own more of it, that's fine. But to have a big negotiation in the current climate, I think the downsides for the country are much larger than the potential upsides. So on this one, I think the tables have been turned. I'm a little bit more optimistic than maybe Jason is. And, and that's because at the end of the day, whatever becomes law um, is not going to be something that gets the votes of only 218 Republicans in the House. You have a democratically controlled Senate, you have a Democrat in the White House. So any bill that becomes law to include something on the debt limit is by definition going to have to be bipartisan. It's not that no Republicans would have to vote for this in the House or the Senate. You would still need 60 votes in the Senate. So you needed a minimum nine Senate Republicans. You would need some cohort of House Republicans as well. But it's not like you've got to get the same 218 that Speaker McCarthy had to get to be elected Speaker. So the narrowness of the majority makes it a little trickier, but I don't think it sort of fundamentally alters the dynamic of how a bill is going to become a law in this arrangement of power. I mean, the issue, and you know the Congress far better than I do, Rohit, is that it needs to come to the floor. 
And most speakers are very reluctant to bring something to the floor unless at least half of their own party votes for it. And will he be willing to sacrifice um, his speakership, which he has already made an awful lot of compromises to get in the first place? Um, That makes me nervous. No, look, I agree. I think the challenge is, can you get um, a so-called majority of the majority? So out of the, you know, 222 House Republicans, can you get, you know, half of them? But that is a much easier hill to climb than getting all 218 Republicans to vote for something that President Biden is going to sign into law. Jason, a question for you on the White House's position on this. Unlike former President Obama, Biden is saying that he has no plans to negotiate over raising the debt ceiling. And I wonder, from your perspective, does he actually have that option? Yes. Now, to be clear, he is going to have to negotiate the level of government spending. Every year in the United States, there's something called discretionary spending, which covers everything from education to national defense, and Congress has to pass those laws every year. So if you want to borrow less, you spend less. Pass a law to spend less. Don't take the debt limit hostage. I think that's his view, and I think that's, based on experience, the right one. Jason Furman is now an economics professor at Harvard, and he advised President Obama during the 2011 debt ceiling negotiations. And Rohit Kumar is now with PricewaterhouseCoopers. He was an advisor to Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell during those negotiations. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Authorities in Peoria, Illinois, are investigating the firebombing of a Planned Parenthood facility. The attack happened just a few days after the state's governor signed a bill into law that provides protections to abortion providers. Tim Shelley of member station WCBU reports. The Planned Parenthood clinic in Peoria is expected to remain closed for months after a so-called incendiary device was thrown through a window late Sunday night. A new chain-link fence and police tape surround the building now in the days after the attack. Several windows are boarded up with plywood. Police haven't made any arrests yet, but they do have some clues. A security camera captured the image of a white pickup truck with a red driver's side door. They believe it's linked to the case. Nobody was in the building when the fire started, but one firefighter suffered minor injuries. Peoria Mayor Rita Ali says the arsonist was clearly trying to send a message. But violence isn't the right way. We have to be tough in cases like this. We have to have zero tolerance for these types of violent acts. The state is one of several that's enshrined abortion protections into law. The legislation signed by Governor J.B. Pritzker last week shields Illinois providers and out-of-state patients seeking abortions from legal action. The Peoria Health Center doesn't offer in-clinic abortions, but it does provide abortion pills and other sexual health treatments, including transgender hormone therapy. In a statement, Planned Parenthood of Illinois President and CEO Jennifer Welch says senseless acts of vandalism are on the rise across the country. She says Illinois, an abortion safe haven, has become a target as extreme and divisive rhetoric increases. Democratic U.S. Senator Dick Durbin, traveling in central Illinois today, says the escalation in the type of violence that occurred in Peoria is terrifying. This violence in American political life has to be uh, condemned by both sides. Uh, I don't care whether it comes from the right or the left, it is absolutely unacceptable, whether it's in New Mexico or Peoria or anywhere. Damages to the Peoria Clinic are estimated at $150,000. A Planned Parenthood spokesperson says patients are being referred to other clinics or scheduled for telehealth appointments. Employees will also be relocated to other clinics. 
The closest one is 40 miles away. For NPR News, I'm Tim Shelley in Peoria, Illinois. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stocks took a real dive today across the board. The Dow fell more than one and three quarters percent at 614 points. It finally settled at 33,297. S&P posted its worst day in more than a month. It lost more than one and a half percent to close at 39.29. The Nasdaq dropped one and a quarter percent to finish at 10,957. Microsoft is not saying how many jobs in Massachusetts it will cut as it lays off five percent of its global workforce. The company said today it's going to eliminate 10,000 jobs and it may consolidate offices. It says it needs to reduce costs as its customers are cutting back uh, in anticipation of a recession. Marketplace has the day's business news starting at 6.30. It's now 5.19. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com MOS. And WorkBar, flexible co-working and private offices for individuals and teams in Greater Boston. Quincy and Framingham coming soon. WorkBar.com slash WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, there's currently no regulation around how college athletes are compensated, but Congress might step in to change that. I think if Congress does not end up swooping in and saving the day, someone outside of college sports is going to have a say on what this business model looks like five years from now. That's still to come. Should have clear skies tonight, down around 32 degrees, partly sunny tomorrow. Clouds on the march later in the day. High temperatures in the low 40s, maybe some rain late in the day tomorrow. 48 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, for more than 95 years supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The U.S. military is fighting a deep recruiting slump. So with fewer young adults signing up, the Navy has decided to give older potential recruits a chance. Jay Price of member station WUNC reports from Encinitas, California. Swami's Beach, one of the best surfing spots in Southern California and a kind of paradise perfect clear water below palm-topped cliffs. Matthew Allen calls it his office. On a recent spring-like morning, he was there coaching 11-year-old Ray Goodson. What I want to focus on today, you know what we talked about, easing into the session, finding your rhythm, not rushing it. Allen has lived a laid-back dream in Maui and Southern California, surfing big waves, fronting a bar band. I've been fortunate enough to make this a life for 20 years. To me, that's unreal. Not what you'd expect a 41-year-old surfing school owner to give up, to join the Navy. Allen, whose father is a retired Marine, had begun feeling like he owes a big debt to the nation that made it all possible. I'm always trying to balance how good this is with 
Can I give something back to deserve this? And suddenly he can, thanks to a Navy policy change. When Alan walked into a recruiter's office last summer, he was already two years past the age limit of 39. But a few months later, after he lobbied every Navy official he could reach, his recruiter called and said the Navy had raised its age limit to 41. That's the oldest of any service. The Marines, for example, have a ceiling of 28 unless you get a special waiver, and the Army, 35. But the Navy's national chief recruiter says older recruits can do well. We don't have a high attrition rate through the first term, somebody that's 38 or 39 years old. So I think it's safe to assume that somebody that's 40 or 41 years old would probably be in the same performance categories. That's Master Chief Petty Officer Gerald Alchin. He says Allen's late blooming interest isn't as unusual as it might seem. Many older recruits wanted to join when they were young, but for whatever reason couldn't, or like Allen, just began feeling a need to do something more meaningful. A lot of times it's for that pride of belonging, the patriotism, the wants, or the need to serve something bigger than themselves. And literally being more mature, they often have a better understanding of what it takes to do well and are able to move quickly into leadership roles. The Navy has also eased other restrictions, including those on single parents, people with prominent tattoos, and those who initially test positive for marijuana, even though it's now legal in many states. Alchin says it just makes good sense to open the door to recruits who are likely to make solid sailors, but are blocked by outdated standards. Especially if the data says that they're going to perform at the same rate. Allen is a case study in the Navy's new rules. Even after the age change, he needed several waivers, including one more than 100 pages long for his 43 tattoos, mostly images tied to surfing and music. A coin-sized image of a spider web inside one ear held things up for several days, but finally, that too was approved. Allen's recruiter, Petty Officer Edward Smith, said he's never worked with a recruit who was so motivated or who had to be. It was a few waivers. It was quite a bit to overcome. And he's been there every step of the way, never backed down, always welcomed the challenge. The Navy needs a lot more Matt Allens, though. Alchin, the national chief recruiter, says it's competing with civilian employers that also are struggling to find enough workers and have had to up their own games with more pay and benefits. Before, the Navy had an edge by offering benefits like housing and medical care. Now, though, it's having to go a little further and a little older. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price in Encinitas, California. So it debuted as a widely anticipated animated revamp of a beloved character from the Scooby-Doo universe. My name is Velma Dinkley, and this is my origin story. But HBO Max's new series, Velma, has drawn criticism, including from fans put off by some of the more adult themes in the series. I've decided to finally share the bone-chilling events that drove me to assemble the greatest team of spooky mystery solvers ever. Yeah, it was me, not Fred and his weird sex fan. This is my story told my way. All right, NPR's own TV critic Eric Diggins joins us now to talk about what happened. Hey, Eric. Hi. Okay, so even though there was a lot of buzz around Velma, it's gotten some pretty harsh reviews, right? Like I saw that The Telegraph, a British newspaper, called this the most hated show 
on TV. First of all, is that fair? Like, like what happened here? <laughs> well, the simple answer is it's a comedy that's just not funny. <laughs> but <laughs> I think if, if you look at it more expansively, the show's trying to accomplish a lot of things at once that symbolize these big trends in modern TV shows, and it's failing at a lot of them. For example, uh, Velma tries to modernize the characters from the Scooby-Doo universe by making them more cynical, more sexual, and more self-centered. Velma herself is this odd, revenge high school outcast who hates the cool kids and may have driven her mother to leave her family. Wow. <laughs> and she doesn't get along with the other characters who will eventually become part of the Scooby gang. As we can hear, we've got this scene where Velma first meets Fred, who's the good-looking blonde guy in the group. Uh -huh. Let's listen. It's Velma from school. You cheat off me in Spanish because you think I'm Mexican. Maybe. I have a disease where I can't recognize people who aren't hot. My doctor says it's basically sickle cell for rich guys. Is it called rudeness? It is. You're, like, smart. Oh, wow. Thank you. You're not a compliment. Dang, that's kind of nasty. <laughs> yeah, it's a little different dynamic than they had in the original cartoons. And, you know, that upsets some fans who really love the franchise. Well, that voice we just heard, I mean, that's Mindy Kaling. She's the executive producer of the show. She voices Velma. And I understand that she's gotten a lot of criticism for the whole series, even though she didn't create the show. So, like, why do you think so much of the reaction has been focused on Kayleen? Well, Kayleen's getting criticism from two different camps. Now, in modernizing Velma, they did a couple of things that many TV shows do these days. First, they changed the race of the character. They made her South Asian like Kayleen. Mm -hmm. And then they also show her having a crush on a female friend, leaning into these ideas that the character has always been gay. So there are fans who object to the diversifying of classic pop culture franchises, complaining about the series being too, quote, woke. But there's others who note the way that Velma has this crush on Fred. It shows a South Asian woman seeking romance and validation from a white guy. Ah. So Kaling is getting criticism from both sides of the pop culture, socio-political spectrum. Can't win. Well, overall, what do you think all of this blowback means for HBO Max? Because they've already taken criticism for, like, cutting costs, taking all the episodes of Westworld off the platform. Well, ultimately, I'm not sure this is going to have a lot of impact on HBO Max, but Velma is an example of a TV project that can really go off the rails if there isn't a solid vision for why the show should exist in the first place. I mean, if you think about those live-action Scooby-Doo films, they were always careful about how they modernized the characters because they knew that nostalgia was a big reason why people would show up for them. Now, here, by changing the characters so radically with no real creative benefit, you wind up with a show that removes the reason that the fans originally fell in love with the characters without giving them any new reasons to care. <laughs> that is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's pretty tough to complain about today's weather, except that it's about to change. Tonight, we should get down to freezing, then rise only to the low 40s tomorrow. Sunshine to start tomorrow, but then clouds moving in, along with some showers later in the afternoon. And then for Friday, a messy mix of rain and snow. Not too much in the way of accumulation, though. Should hold to the 30s on Friday. As of now, it looks like we should have plenty of clouds ahead over the weekend. Temperatures in the mid-30s to low 40s. 48 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Montgomery Carroll Group, guiding buyers and sellers in Brookline and Newton. More about Matt Montgomery, Lauren Carroll, and their team at mcgroupcompass.com. 
Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into Morning Edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden plans to visit storm-ravaged California tomorrow as the state begins to dry out from a series of destructive storms that's caused widespread damage and flooding in many areas. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says Biden plans to survey some of the hardest-hit areas in California during his visit. During these stops, the president will meet with first responders, state and local officials, and communities impacted by the devastation, survey recovery efforts, and assess what additional federal support is needed. Yesterday at the White House, Biden hosted the Golden State Warriors, who won the NBA championship last year. Biden says the team reflects America through its style of play, saying they play with joy and drive to be the, the best. Russian President Vladimir Putin is assuring victory in Ukraine, this despite repeated setbacks for Russian forces during its nearly year-long offensive for Moscow. NPR's Charles Maines reports. President Putin's comments came amid events to mark the 80th anniversary of the initial breaking of the Leningrad blockade, a nearly 900-day encirclement of the city today known as St. Petersburg by Nazi German forces in World War II. Speaking to workers at a local arms factory, Putin drew parallels with the war in Ukraine and said victory there was inevitable thanks to continued solidarity among the Russian people. The Kremlin leader has repeatedly linked the Soviet Union's victory over Nazi Germany in World War II with Russia's current fight against what Putin insists are neo-Nazis in modern-day Ukraine. It's a view that Western nations and historians reject as false in an attempt to justify Russia's attack on its neighbor. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street after some weak economic data and comments from the Fed about its future rate hikes. The Dow was down nearly 2 percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell made history today when she took the oath of office. The former Boston City Councilor and Legal Counsel is the first black woman elected to statewide office in Massachusetts. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports on today's ceremony at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. Speaking before a crowd of about a thousand people, Campbell said she hopes to be an example. My hope is that everyday women and young people who look like me and see the incredible work of this office will feel less invisible, despairing, and lonely. As someone who grew up in public housing and had family members involved in the criminal legal system, Campbell said her personal as well as professional experience will inform her work. Among the issues she pledged to work on are elder fraud, gun law enforcement, protecting reproductive rights, and increasing accountability and transparency in correctional facilities and the juvenile justice system. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Former State Senator Diana DiZoglio will officially be sworn in as the new state auditor tonight at 6 o'clock. DiZoglio says she plans to stand up to leadership when it comes to the issues of transparency in government. 
I think it's important that the state auditor be able to be an independent voice for the people of Massachusetts, as she is the watchdog of state government responsible for ensuring that there is accountability, transparency and equity across the board. Desaglio's inauguration ceremony will be held at her alma mater, Methuen High School. Governor Maura Healy will administer the oath. Cambridge-based Moderna is a step closer to releasing its first-ever vaccine for the respiratory illness RSV. The company said this week clinical trials found the shot to be 84 percent effective in people 60 and older. Boston University global health professor Christopher Gill says it's important for seniors to be vaccinated. This could be very practical for the elderly and generally and particularly for elderly who have problems with their lungs and really can't afford to have uh, the metaphorical punch in the nose due to RSV infections in the winter. Moderna plans to file for federal approval of the vaccine by July. It's still conducting trials on its RSV vaccine for children. And the Boston Celtics are mourning the death of former player and coach Chris Ford. Ford's family says the 74-year-old died yesterday. He suffered a heart attack earlier this month. Ford played guard for the Celtics from 1978 to 82. He even made the first ever three-point shot in NBA history. That was in 1979. After Ford retired, he became an assistant coach for the Celts and eventually its head coach from 1990 to 95. The Celtics released a statement today saying Ford was a versatile player who made his mark every step of the way. Tonight, the Bruins visit the Islanders for a 7.30 matchup. Celts are off. Should have clear skies tonight, down around 32 degrees. Partly sunny skies tomorrow morning. And then clouds move in later in the day. Highs in the low 40s could have rain showers late tomorrow. 46 degrees now in Boston at 5.35. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The threat of hackers piercing through the digital protections that guard state secrets, that's the sort of thing that keeps national security experts up at night. So it was news when Chinese researchers recently claimed that they could break a common encryption algorithm with an emerging technology called quantum computing. But some encryption experts are skeptical. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin is here to explain. Hey, Jenna. Hey, Elsa. So what exactly are these Chinese researchers claiming? So there's a brand new paper that came out on an academic site called Archive. The authors say that they found a method where today's very basic quantum computers could already break a very common form of modern encryption. It's honestly a really complicated paper. (laughs) But the experts explained it to me like this. The authors used what's called a heuristic algorithm to try to break encryption. That's basically a formula that's designed to solve a problem really fast by starting with an estimate and using the result to get closer to the answer. You can think of it like throwing a dart at a dartboard and using that first hit to try to help you get closer to the bullseye. And all of this is scary because the U.S. government says that its adversaries, China in particular, is collecting tons of encrypted, sensitive U.S. data in the hopes that one day they can use a quantum computer to decrypt it all. 
if this paper is right, that's a lot sooner than they thought it was. Wow. Okay, that's disturbing. But how possible is that actually? Like, what are experts saying? So first of all, it's important to clarify that the website where this paper appeared, Archive, is commonly used in the academic community, but it's not peer-reviewed. Even so, experts in math and physics have taken a closer look already because of the buzz that the paper was getting. They say that it's interesting in terms of incremental scientific progress, but there's basically no evidence at this point that the method would work at scale. At the end of the paper, even the researchers admitted that more work needs to be done. Okay, so does that mean that there's no reason to worry? Like, like what should be the takeaway from this paper and all of the response to it? So there's not exactly no reason to worry. Experts say that there will indeed come a day when quantum computers can break encryption. It's just not here yet. It's really hard to predict these kinds of breakthroughs, but experts say we're probably closer to decades away from that. Mm. The real takeaway, I think, is that it's really good to exercise skepticism, especially on overhyped subjects like quantum computing, particularly when geopolitics are involved. Sure. It's tough to speculate about the researchers' intentions when they published, but by putting these claims out there, it had the impact of creating some fear that China is way ahead of the U.S. Okay. But you mentioned that China's already stealing data and waiting to decrypt it. So is it just too late at this point to protect those secrets, those secrets that they've already stolen? It might indeed be too late to protect some of the things already stolen. But, you know, for national security officials who need to keep things secret for a really long time, they've got to do what they can. So that includes designing algorithms that are quantum proof. The U.S. government's already working on that, but it's going to take a long time. It could also mean rethinking entirely how we store data. Some researchers think breaking files up into little pieces could help prevent an enemy from piecing them back together. You know, a lot of really smart people are, are working on this full time. That is NPR's Jenna McLaughlin, another very smart person. Thank you so much, Jenna. <laughs> Thanks, Elsa. The financial structure of college athletics is evolving quickly. Some might say unraveling quickly. There's a patchwork of state laws about how student-athletes can be compensated. Several lawsuits are working their way through the courts. And so how does the NCAA hope to straighten this out? Well, here's what Baylor University President Linda Livingstone suggested when she addressed the NCAA's Board of Governors last week. Congress is really the only entity that can affirm student-athletes' unique status. We have to ensure that Congress understands what's at stake and motivate them to act. Well, Nicole Auerbach has been covering the moving goalposts of college sports. She is a senior writer with The Athletic. Good to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Before we get to the role that Congress might play here, just quickly remind us how we reached this point. I mean, in 2021, college athletes got the right to make money off their name, image, and likeness. Tell us what's happened since then. Well, it's kind of been an unregulated space, and a lot of that is because of the Alston case, which was not about name, image, and likeness. That was about education-related benefits for athletes. And the Supreme Court ruled unanimously against the NCAA and said you can't cap that type of compensation. That came just days before the floodgates opened on name, image, and likeness. And so everyone was very nervous and scared of potential lawsuits, and the NCAA really didn't regulate it. Why does the NCAA think Congress is the key to resolving all of this? It feels like it is a last resort as the walls are closing in from various other lawsuits and the National Labor Relations Board challenging the business model of college sports. So I think when you heard those comments from Linda Livingstone and you hear comments from the incoming NCAA president, Charlie Baker, what they're saying is please protect the the descriptor of a student athlete. 
you say Congress is sort of a last resort for the NCAA. This is a Congress that took 15 votes just to get a Speaker of the House. How realistic is it that they would actually do something like this? It was certainly ironic that this message came out just a couple of days after that all went down. And it is a last resort because the walls are closing in on those lawsuits. So you have the Johnson case, you have the House case, and then you have the NLRB working on an unfair labor practice charge. So you have these outside entities already taking aim at the NCAA system. And I think that you're looking at Congress as something that can preempt state laws and and create national standards in an area that has not been regulated and hoping that that will allow the NCAA to continue to make rules in this space. And Charlie Baker said that there are always challenges associated with moving any legislation, but he thinks that there are enough entities around these Congress people, around these senators who care about college sports deeply and can convince them that this whole thing will look very different if they don't do something. So they think that that can create a sense of urgency around this issue. Is there any risk that the NCAA comes off looking like the boy who cried wolf? Because for years they said any compensation at all would bring the system down like a house of cards. And now they're saying, well, calling these athletes employees would bring the system down like a house of cards. Like at some point when the system hasn't collapsed, are people left saying, hmm, the NCAA has lost some credibility? I think that's a very real concern. And I also think that the NCAA has never been weaker. It has been very reactive on these issues over the last 10 years. If you think back about the different lawsuits that really pressured the system, the NCAA was never proactive on these issues. And so throwing up your hands and saying, well, maybe Congress will solve us has always rubbed a certain portion of the constituents the wrong way and a lot of fans and the public. You've described what the schools want. Can you tell us what the players want? Well, the players are enjoying the spoils of the NIL world. They are enjoying the opportunity to cash in. For the most part, athletes are more aware of the financial circumstances surrounding them than ever before. They know what the coaches make. They know what the facilities cost. And they see where the money has flown and that it's not gone directly to them. So I think NIL is a good first step for them. But there are a lot of athletes who understand the value of collective action, the value of revenue sharing, and have spoken up about how they believe that they deserve a cut of that. That's Nicole Auerbach of The Athletic. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Lunar New Year, Valentine's Day, Mardi Gras, for a range of holiday celebrations, kids, and grown-up birthdays, Americans have shopped at Party City. But this purveyor of balloons, costumes, and party supplies has filed for bankruptcy. NPR's Alina Seljuk explains. Years ago, Party City held big promise. The stuff it sells didn't used to have a ton of competition. City. Vampire teeth, party hats, wigs, and streamers, a vast selection of fairly cheap items unmatched by their stores. Things that people like to buy in person, not online. Shop Party City for Valentine's Day, Cinco de Mayo, Fourth of July, Thanksgiving, biggest St. Patrick's Day sale ever. But little by little, competition stacked up. Joe Feldman is an analyst at Telsey Advisory Group. 
I mean, there's a lot of other places you can get party supplies, whether it's at Walmart or Target or Amazon or the dollar stores or even the grocers. Now even Home Depot is in the giant plastic skeleton game. Not to mention Spirit Halloween, chomping at Party City's most important season. Halloween, be flirty, be scary. Add to that some peculiar challenges of a party store, like the helium shortage. A global problem that just won't go away for years now, making Party City's big balloon business a bit of a trick. Then things got really dicey during the pandemic. Social gathering really ground to a halt for like two years, right? Um... Party City is the place you go for social gathering supplies. (laughs) These days, inflation is the latest scare. People have been looking a bit more closely at their party budgets. And through it all, Party City has been carrying a big burden, almost $2 billion in debt. And that's why it's filed for bankruptcy, to get its debt under control. This story has played out with many once unrivaled chains. Toys R Us is an example, uh, Neiman Marcus, J. Crew. David Silverman is a senior director at Fitch Ratings, listing off some notable bankruptcies of recent years. This traces back to the mid-2000s, when private equity firms swept through the retail world, taking prominent companies private in so-called leveraged buyouts, loading them up with debt. The plan is for the company to grow and use the cash flow to pay down debt. And that just simply hasn't happened in the case of Party City. To be clear, Party City is not going out of business, but its sagging sales have made its debt untenable. Silverman says the good news is that the company does seem to have a clear plan, a deal not only to restructure and shed some debt, but also an infusion of money to stay open through the bankruptcy. The company has more than 800 stores and seems to suggest that it may close at least a couple dozen of them. The big question is whether it will stop there. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. The U.S. Capitol Police have been recognized with a Congressional Gold Medal for helping protect lawmakers during the riots of January 6, 2021. But one former member of the force did not receive that honor. A video captured him wearing a MAGA hat that day. Many assumed he was sympathetic to the attackers. Now he's telling his side of the story. More tomorrow on Morning Edition. Listen on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up tonight at 7 o'clock on WBUR, New York Representative George Santos is accused of fabricating stories about almost every aspect of his life. How uncontrolled liars get that way. Ahead on On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR. The Bruins are in New York tonight to face the Islanders. Faceoff is at 7.30. The Celtics play tomorrow. Outfielder Adam Duvall is joining the Red Sox. Today, the team agreed to sign the 34-year-old to a one-year contract worth $7 million. He played for the Atlanta Braves last season. The signing is expected to allow the Sox to move Kike Hernandez from the outfield to an infield post. Overnight tonight, clear skies, temperatures about freezing. Then tomorrow, partly sunny skies early. Some clouds move in later with highs about 42 degrees. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. 
I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Confession. Sometimes, when I'm bored, I watch clips from the Jimmy Awards. Dad! It's a musical theater competition for high schoolers. And all the king's horses and all the king's men will never put poor Charlie together again. That's Renee Rapp's winning performance from 2018. She was 18 years old. And since then, she's had a career to rival any of the great divas. She made her Broadway debut the following year, starring as Regina George in Mean Girls. Now she's starring in the hit HBO series, The Sex Lives of College Girls, which is in its second season. I'm still seeing Tori. Stephanie's out. August is in. If Monica sends one more gif, she's a Hot bangs girl from the student center flossed in front of me, so she's out. And she just finished up a sold out tour for her debut solo album, Everything to Everyone. Renee Rapp, welcome to All Things Considered. I'm amazed you found time for us with everything else. <laughs> Thank you. I Listen, happy to make time for this. I'm very excited to be here. You have such a long list of titles next to your name, but you've said you always wanted to pursue a career in music, that that was the number one yeah. goal. So why did you pursue acting first? So essentially what happened is like ever since I was, you know, born or like had a thought, I kind of always knew that like being an artist and being a musician and a songwriter was exactly what I wanted to do. And I was very determined to do whatever I had to to get to this point. And I was always on stage. My mom would sometimes put me in um, local musicals in my hometown. And I didn't love it, but I was like, this is a great opportunity for me to perform. I just always related to like pop artists and pop music more. And like Beyonce was more interesting to me than like Merrily We Roll Along personally. Okay, so you're saying that starring in a Broadway musical was for you a means to an end. Well, so, <laughs> it, no, was, it, was, it was a stepping stone. <laughs> It wasn't, it, it was, to be honest. At first, like, that's exactly what I wanted it to be. I basically switched to an art school um, halfway through high school so that I could hopefully compete at the Jimmys, get seen by agents, get a job, work on Broadway, move to New York, and do music. Hmm. That was, like, my master plan. I've heard some musical theater performers say they found it hard to cross over and be taken seriously as TV actors or as recording artists. Mm -hmm. Did you encounter any of that? I think I did when I was younger. But I think, like, I am someone who, like, I wear my everything on my sleeve. Um, so I think I kind of, hopefully, make it very hard for people not to take me seriously because I'm quite aggressive and I'm quite delusional. <laughs> That's a potent combination. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 
Well, another thing that strikes me is that like you have your own fan base that you've built. You've got more than a million followers on TikTok. Yeah. The minute you announced your tour, it's sold out immediately in part because you don't have to wait for a producer, a record label, a venue to turn the PR machine into gear and generate interest. Yeah, I'm very spoiled. I think like I feel like I'm the biggest fan of my fan base. Um, they are they're very loyal. And I think we like found a lot of comfort in each other. It's it's an amazing experience and it, it honestly has become very familial. You released your first single, Tattoos, in June of last year. 15 and 16, I had to be strong. 22, I'm still scared of it all. Why did you want this to be the song that launched your solo music career? To be honest, it was the first song that I felt good enough about to like really post on social media. Hmm. I don't think I ever thought I would put it out, though. It just gained traction in a way that I had kind of always dreamt of. Hmm. Once I had numbers online that were easily digestible to to people who are in music, they were like, oh, people do actually want to listen to this. Huh. It almost sounds like having this relationship with your fans allows the mm -hmm. process of writing and releasing music to be more of a two-way street than the cliché go into a studio, record an album, then release it to the world and see how it lands. Completely. I've been trying to get signed to a major label since I was 16. And every single time that I had meetings when I was a kid, it was always like, mm, we don't really understand you. Mm, we don't really feel like people care. But that traction on that video ended up getting me signed. So like wow. my fans got me signed. Like I attribute my career to them. That changed my life. You often play roles of sort of queen bees, <laughs> like privileged young women exercising yes. their power. Yes. <laughs> How does that compare to your childhood in North Carolina? I think it does in a lot of ways, especially with Leighton, my character on College Girls. Like, I see so many parallels to me as a kid when I was growing up. Describe that kid. I think that kid was really, really, really judgmental of everything that she was. I would hear a lot of, like, homophobic things or, like, very, like, ignorant comments, things like that. And I was also such a perpetuator of those things. Mm. I was so homophobic to myself to the point where, like, I wouldn't come out to anybody and I'd be like kind of judgmental when I would like be seeing someone who wasn't a man or I wouldn't be in like a heteronormative relationship. I did that. And so does Leighton. I don't want being gay to be my identity. I like my identity. I don't want to be the gay Kappa girl or the lesbian cousin. I don't, I don't want to be other. It made me face a lot of stuff that I did not want to. Hmm. And so not only did I become like way more comfortable with who I am, I also like saw a lot of like the ugly parts of myself I didn't want to see and then had to address. When I walk in the kitchen, my heart hits the floor. You said that In the Kitchen is your favorite song you've written. Yes. It's also your most streamed song. What do you think makes it so meaningful to you and your fans? That song to me feels like I like shed a skin that people knew me from, right? Because everyone knew me, who, who did know me, from a, a Broadway time, from a very specific relationship, from a very specific way I presented myself. And a lot of that had to do with like me trying to make myself smaller to like make someone else comfortable. But when I wrote In the Kitchen, that was like, I have had enough of that. 
I was no longer gonna like limit myself for someone else's happiness. Like I was gonna do it for myself. Renee Rapp, it's been so great talking with you. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having me. Her debut solo EP is called Everything to Everyone. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vicks.com. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Still unseasonably warm out there. 48 degrees. Clear overnight tonight, falling to freezing. Tomorrow should begin with bright skies that may gradually turn gray as the day goes on. Clouds, maybe a late afternoon shower, only reaching about 42 degrees. Rain moves in tomorrow night, mixes with some snow on Friday. Highs in the mid-30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 5.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A helicopter carrying the leadership team of Ukraine's interior minister was crashed outside the capital today. All nine people on board were killed, as were children at a nearby kindergarten. There's no mention of any Russian involvement in that crash. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, January 18th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also ahead, Dr. David Kessler, the chief scientist who oversaw the creation and distribution of the coronavirus vaccine, is saying goodbye to his job and remembering the successes of the vaccine. Operation Warp Speed, I think, was the signal uh, American achievement across administrations. Also, how school districts in New York, Los Angeles, and elsewhere are dealing with a new chat bot that uses artificial intelligence to produce essays. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Software maker Microsoft says it is laying off 10,000 
8,000 employees who account for just under 5% of the company's workforce. NPR's Andrea Shu reports the announcement is the latest in a series of layoffs in major tech firms. Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella announced the layoffs through a blog post. He began by writing, we're living through times of significant change. He noted that consumers are pulling back on spending and companies in every industry are preparing for a possible recession. He also said the company will turn its attention to artificial intelligence, calling it the next major wave of computing. The layoff news at Microsoft follows major job cut announcements at Meta, Twitter, Amazon, and Salesforce, as well as in industries outside tech, including banking and media. At Microsoft, CEO Nadella called on teams to raise the bar and perform better than the competition, saying now it's showtime. Andrea Shu, NPR News. Wes Moore was inaugurated today as Maryland's first black governor. He is only the third black person to be elected governor in the U.S. Remember station WYPR, Matt Bush has more. Moore's inaugural ceremony was heavy on symbolism and star power. Oprah Winfrey introduced him, and in his inaugural address, Moore noted the role Maryland's capital city played in slavery. We're blocks away from the Annapolis docks, where so many enslaved people arrived in this country against their will, and we are standing in front of a capital that was built by their hands. Douglas Wilder of Virginia was the first black person elected governor in the U.S. in 1989, followed by Deval Patrick of Massachusetts in 2006. For NPR News, I'm Matt Bush in Annapolis, Maryland. The French are bracing for massive strikes and protests tomorrow against President Emmanuel Macron's retirement reform plan. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports many schools will be closed and public transport crippled. This announcement in the Paris metro warns the line will be closed all day Thursday as train drivers walk off the job. Unions and opposition parties have promised the mother of all battles to defeat the government's pension reform effort. Polls show four out of five French voters agree with them, like comedian Mathieu Ducre. With what we've just passed through, like the pandemic and the war, so I think everyone is fed up. What's the meaning of life if you have to work all your life? To, to, to what? Many French say the deficit in the retirement system should be plugged by taxing the ultra-rich, not raising the retirement age on workers. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. The crash of a helicopter that killed Ukraine's interior minister and 13 others is still being investigated. The death of interior minister Denise Monasterski came after the chopper went down near a kindergarten in suburban Kiev. What caused the crash still under investigation? On Wall Street today, the Dow was down 613 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is putting together a proposal for rent control in the city. Rent control is one of the progressive mayor's key campaign promises. As WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports, the plan would cap annual rent hikes at 10 percent. The proposal would allow landlords to increase rent in line with inflation and exempt buildings opened in the past 15 years. The plan's details are still in the works. It was first reported by the Boston Globe. Northeastern University housing policy expert Barry Bluestone says the proposal reconciles tenant rights and developer interests. Relative to proposals in the past, this is a gentle proposal for rent control to protect uh, many existing residents from exorbitant increases in rent. Rent control is banned in Massachusetts, so Wu's plan would need approval from the city council, state legislature, and governor. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. State Senator John Velas says more needs to be done for our military veterans. Velas and two other state lawmakers toured the Chelsea Soldiers' Home yesterday. The visit followed a recent Inspector General's report that described filthy, rodent-infested residential rooms at the state-run facility. The Westfield Democrat and veteran says that's insulting. We've got not many people serving this nation. And if the veterans' homes where many folks are going to be serving the remaining days of their lives are in these types of conditions, uh, absolutely awful. Vila says no deplorable conditions were found at the home yesterday, but the lawmakers want to make sure the previous issues are not a systemic problem. Last week, Governor Maura Healy fired the home superintendent, Eric Johnson, amid allegations of mismanagement and substandard conditions at the facility. Local doctors are warning parents against giving kids adult cold medicines amid the national shortage of children's Tylenol and Motrin. Shannon Manzi is the director of safety and quality at Boston Children's Hospital's Department of Pharmacy. I know that folks are looking for acetaminophen and ibuprofen, which are components of the mixed cold medicines. But as the FDA has said before, those are really not safe for the young children. Manzi suggests parents looking for children's cold medicine check smaller pharmacies and corner stores or ask friends if they have extra supplies. Manzi says she's beginning to see supplies increase as rates of respiratory illnesses such as flu and RSV drop. Billboards will go up next month to raise awareness of a UMass Amherst student who's been missing since 2004. 21-year-old Maura Murray disappeared along a road in Haverhill, New Hampshire, after she was involved in what appeared to be a single car crash. When police arrived, they found no trace of her. Her family has arranged for digital billboards to be placed along Interstate 93 in the Woburn, Stoneham, and Methuen areas. Relatives say they believe somebody knows something about her disappearance. They hope the signs will help encourage people to contact New Hampshire State Police with information. We should have clear skies tonight, down around 32 degrees for a low, partly sunny tomorrow. Clouds show up later in the day, maybe a shower as well, with high temperatures just about 40. Rain tomorrow night, mixing with some snow on Friday. No clear indication yet of just how much, possibly just an inch or so. 48 degrees still in the Boston area at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. A helicopter carrying Ukraine's interior minister and other senior officials crashed outside Kyiv today, killing at least 14 people. The helicopter hit a kindergarten, and officials say at least one child is among the dead, with many more wounded. NPR's Lauren Magaki reports from Kyiv. It was a quiet, foggy morning in Brovare, a suburb outside Kyiv. Elena Kolesnikova says she was making coffee when she heard a loud noise. She thought maybe it was an explosion from a drone. Instead, it was the sound of a helicopter crashing into a kindergarten, where children were already inside and had started their school day. Witnesses say after the crash, a fire broke out, the flames reaching several stories into the air. Kalisnikova's granddaughter, now grown, once attended the now-destroyed school. She says when she found out what happened to the school, with the children inside of it, she couldn't breathe because of the horror. Clutching her chest, she watches as rescuers climb through smoldering debris. The school walls and windows are blown out. 
burn marks scorch the walls that are left intact, and pieces of the downed helicopter are strewn across the playground. Inga Lichenko also lives nearby. She came to see the remnants of the school, pushing her two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Elizaveta, in a stroller. Lichenko was planning on enrolling her daughter here, but now she's thinking she'll wait until the war is over before she sends her daughter to any school. It's very frightening what happened. She says it was very foggy, and she doesn't know why they decided to fly a helicopter in such weather. The cause of the crash is still unknown, and the investigation may take some time. The helicopter was taking Interior Minister Denis Monastersky and his colleagues to a hot spot near the front lines, according to officials. Ministry of Interest is uh, deeply involved in uh, protecting uh, Ukraine. Helena Yanchenko is a member of parliament. She worked with Monastersky when he was a member there. And she says he was the best minister of interior Ukraine has ever had. In his role, Monastersky oversaw the law enforcement, the police force, state emergency services. National Guard, uh, border guards, and he was coordinating all these efforts in order to protect Ukraine from aggressor. The government has already appointed a new interim minister, the head of the national police, Ihor Klemenko. Yanchenko says it's a smart move. As of the ministry, I'm, I'm pretty much like calm. And Mr. Klemenko is like, he knows the system, he knows the situation. So uh, it will not help Russia. Still, she says Monastersky's death is a huge loss. She describes him as a man of strong values who dreamt about building a better Ukraine. He leaves behind a wife and two children. Lauren Migaki, NPR News, Kyiv. Operation Warp Speed is coming to a stop. That program oversaw the creation and distribution of hundreds of millions of doses of the coronavirus vaccine. It started under the Trump administration, and for the last two years, Dr. David Kessler has led the effort, though without the space age name. He is now leaving the Biden administration, which signals that the federal vaccination program is also winding down. Dr. Kessler, good to have you back on All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. I said this program distributed hundreds of millions of doses of the vaccine, but the distribution actually happened happened at pharmacies and clinics all over the country. So how would you describe what your role was from this perch in Washington, helping to make sure that vaccines got to people all over the country? One of my um, colleagues wrote me an email yesterday, and I think he summed up what we did. He said, you you created a goal-oriented culture of cooperation to put the vaccines, boosters, and antivirals within easy reach of the American people. I think that there's a team. It wasn't me alone, but that goal-oriented process of cooperation. You know, there's great agencies at HHS. There's FDA, NIH, CDC, and we were sort of the glue. Can you tell us about a specific challenge or a specific conversation that was something you had to solve? in order to get the vaccine to a particular place or group of people? I remember very early on, uh, January uh, 2020, and one of the manufacturers, they'll go unnamed, I remember the night where the CEO said, we're going to sell these vaccines 
in the commercial market, go private with these vaccines. And I just looked at him, it was over Zoom, and I said, that's not going to happen. Hmm. What power did you have to keep that from happening? I'm not sure exactly what legal authority I had, but the thing that I did know that I had was the president of the United States. Uh, he would back us. <laughs> and so did the CEO just back down? I think uh, the proof is that everyone in this country uh, had access to the vaccine, not just people uh, who could pay or could afford. It was within you know, five miles of it, 95% were within five miles. It was easy. Sure, there were a couple of lines early on, but then I think it's one of the great historical achievements. Uh, I don't think in the history of public health, I don't think we'll ever see this kind of effort uh, again. You said everybody has had access to the vaccine. Not everybody has taken advantage of that access. In fact, only 16% of Americans have gotten an updated booster. Something like 78% of Americans have had at least one dose of the vaccine. But why do you think that booster number is so low? You know, just, just stepping back, I saw our job is to make it available, hmm. to make sure it was easily accessible. For you weren't the marketers. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I just wanted to make sure that it was available, uh, available equitably. You know, we really did close the gap for uh, disadvantaged and uh, vulnerable communities. It was one of the remarkable stories early on. But you're right. Um, the uptake is not uh, where it should be. Uh, there's still considerable virus out there. Look, uh, you know, I think that it really is a matter of individual choice. People are making uh, their decisions. So I think I understand the country wants to move on, but the tools are out there. If you don't want to have serious uh, complications or hospitalization or death, uh, the virus is not going away. But the tools, they're not perfect, but they're pretty good. And so can you describe going forward what to you the ideal world of vaccinations would look like? Would this be something like a flu shot that people get once a year, every six months? Would there be an innovation that allows one vaccine to deal with any future iterations of the disease? Like, what do you imagine? There's a VRPAC meeting, that's the Vaccine Advisory Committee that FDA has coming up at the end of the month, and they're going to discuss this. I think there's, you know, a wish you know, that maybe we could uh, make uh, COVID vaccines fit the kind of schedule we have for flu. Coming together in the spring to decide on the strain and in the fall, the vaccine becomes available. That works for flu. Uh, that's a seasonal virus. And while there's seasonality components of COVID, uh, it's not just uh, in the fall. So the question remains whether the virus is going to let us fit it into a schedule that we want, or whether, in fact, uh, we're going to see surges. And the question is whether people over 65 will need to be protected, not just in the fall, but at other times. So I still think there's a great deal of uncertainty. There's right now low political will to keep investing in vaccines. There's low demand for people to get updated boosters. And so how wide do you think the gap is between the future you would like to see and the reality we're living in? I think there is support across the aisle for what we did here to accelerate 
vaccines and drugs. But then why hasn't Congress met the funding demands that the administration has asked for? Uh, let's, you know, I, I think I mean, what I would love to see is to take the lessons that we learned out of warp speed and apply it to not only future pandemic issues, but to cancer, to neurodegenerative diseases. I think that there still is strong support for that. We know how to accelerate therapies for serious and life-threatening diseases. And I think there is across the aisle uh, a desire to do that. And then the other half of the puzzle is, you know, the best tool is only good if somebody uses it. And if there isn't demand for uptake of new vaccines, that's a problem, right? Uh, sure. But, but, but there are also, you know, th there were some very positive numbers that came out of this. Some 226 million people got the primary series. That's a lot of people. That's some 80%. I think that's phenomenal. Uh, this is a very diverse country. N no question that vaccines became uh, polarized. But if there's any skeptic out there, go look at the pictures of China today, their hospitals, their emergency rooms, their clinics. Our vaccines were one of the major reasons that we don't look like that now. That's Dr. David Kessler, who has been chief science officer for the Biden administration's COVID-19 response. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Marketplace, the growing trend of young women joining the national security field. Marketplace starts at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. Stocks took a deep dive today across the board. The Dow fell more than one and three quarters percent at 614 points. It finally settled at 33,297. S&P posted its worst day in more than a month. It lost more than one and a half percent to close at 39.29. The Nasdaq dropped one and a quarter percent to finish at 10,957. 100 workers at Boston-based internet provider Starry will be out of a job next week. That's a quarter of its workforce. Starry announced the cuts today and said it needs to reduce expenses and focus on core customers. Its stock price has fallen 99 percent since it went public last year. And Boston-based home security company Simply Safe is closing its Taunton warehouse and laying off 58 people. The company tells state officials layoffs are expected at the end of March. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 23rd, semesteroff.com.
Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Temperatures down around freezing overnight tonight. Tomorrow, sunshine, early clouds, and maybe some rain later on. High temperatures tomorrow in the low 40s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Merrimack Repertory Theater with Letters from Home, a true story of the intergenerational legacy of a Cambodian family. Starts January 21st. MRT.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. China has reported almost 60,000 deaths from COVID since early December. But those who lost loved ones during this time period say that's not the full story and that their families' pandemic-related tragedies have gone unacknowledged. So NPR's Emily Fang asked friends and family to submit remembrances of those who died over the last month. Here are the lives they lived. Zhang Qing says his grandmother was just like so many grandmothers in China who doted on their families. Like many women of her generation, she was also uneducated. Her parents took her to a remote city as a child after heeding government calls to move west, and she never learned to read Chinese characters. Her biggest wish was to see 17-year-old Zhang go to college, which he did. When I was young, my grandmother was the one who taught me how to sound outspoken Chinese. She always told me she regretted not finishing school and that she was illiterate. She dreamed that I would study hard and be happy. Zhang was hoping to see her this Lunar New Year this weekend, after months of COVID lockdowns kept them apart. But she caught COVID in mid-December and died 10 days later. Yet she was not part of the official COVID death toll. Her official cause of death was heart failure. The next time Zhang saw her was at her funeral. Had the country not screwed up its COVID policies, she would have received proper medical care, and she would have been fine. That's Karen Woods, remembering her 94-year-old grandmother who died at home on Christmas. Not of COVID, but of a minor heart condition that went untreated as hospitals stopped taking patients during the surge. Woods says her grandmother knew how to have fun. She joined a dance troupe in her retirement and organized field trips. And in the bitterness of her death, that's what Woods wants to remember, her grandmother's playful spirit. She went through a civil war in China. And I think that's one of the most important lessons I've taken from her, is that you just have to make the best out of the most impossible situation. China has since rolled back nearly all of its COVID policies as a wave of infections rolls unchecked through the country. One Chinese university estimates 900 million people have been infected. But as late as mid-December, some parts of the country were still under lockdown. Controls so severe that the Uyghur writer and poet Abdullah Sawut starved to death in the Xinjiang region, unable to leave his home for food or for blood pressure medication. The 72-year-old had already been weakened by a stint in prison, part of the Chinese state's roundup of prominent Uyghur intellectuals and entrepreneurs. He chose to be alone. He chose to be not mainstream. He completely refused propaganda, any kind of propaganda. And um, that's why I love him so much. Writer Abdueli Ayyub remembers Sawut's legacy. He says Sawut was a genius at poetic improvisation, the author of several novels, untranslated, about Uyghur resistance fighters. And he was a poet who wrote about Sufi Islam and of young love. Of course, he wrote a lot about love. 
Ayub once visited Sawu in his Xinjiang home. He was shocked to find a shabby house nearly empty of furniture. And we asked him, how do you write? Because there is no desk and there's no laptop and anything. And he said, I wrote on the floor. I wrote when I'm lying down. Writing is part of how Jiwei Xiao, a writer and literature professor at Fairfield University, is processing the sudden death of her mother from COVID in late December. Her mother could be distant, but Xiao later learned she'd come from a family that prized sons, not daughters. So almost as soon as she was born, she was abandoned. And as Xiao grew up and moved to the U.S., her bond with her mother strengthened. When she visited me, and she was just picking the, you know, the books from my shelf and started to read. So later on, I thought probably I got this love for literature from my mom instead of my dad. Her mother loved cooking and walking among the trees. And the last time Xiao saw her mother was the summer before the pandemic in China. I hugged her as I always did. And she was so frail. And suddenly I was just overwhelmed by sadness. And maybe I thought, how many times am I going to see her? Or maybe I will never see her. She never did see her again. The huge surge of infections this past December came so quickly, her mother had no time to prepare. The saddest part about her death is she waited for us. Waited for her two daughters to visit her again in China, something impossible the last three years because China banned most inbound travelers. She held out until the winter solstice. So my mom died on the longest night of the year. It is also the crossroads in terms of season. I hope the days will become longer and things will become better. But before that, Xiao thinks many families are still going through the darkest of times as infections continue in China and more deaths happen unacknowledged. Emily Fang, NPR News. ChatGPT is a buzzy new AI technology that can write research papers or poems that come out sounding like a real person did the work. Some teachers are understandably concerned, but one student has an idea on how to help. Janet Ujung Lee from NPR's Education Desk reports. Teachers around the country don't know what to do. Since ChatGPT launched in November, many say they're worried this powerful technology could do their students' homework. Some school districts, including New York City and Los Angeles, have blocked access. But Edward Tian thinks that's the wrong way to go. I'm not for these blanket bans on ChatGPT usage because that does really nothing. Students can get around it um, just like you can use ChatGPT on your Wi-Fi at home. Tian is a 22-year-old computer science student at Princeton University. Just a month after ChatGPT got teachers worried, he built a bot to help them. It's called GPT-0. You can copy and paste any text, and it'll analyze each sentence, each word, and judge how likely it is that a real person or a fake person wrote it. And teachers can, you know, make their own decision of like, wow, this essay is like 100% ChatGPT written, or this essay is like, uses ChatGPT where it really made sense to help influence thought that works. Teachers can make their own informed decisions. Tian says having a handle on what is and isn't written by AI, down to the percentage of an essay, could help teachers who are intimidated by this new technology feel more in charge. 
There are other AI detection tools out there too. Tian wrote his as a winter break passion project. He shared it on Twitter and was surprised to hear quickly from many teachers and even college officials who wanted to learn more. My own high school principal reached out, my own high school English teacher, Ms. Stoika reached out, and uh, admissions officers have reached out saying they're interested. Tian is now building a community of educators and students who want to figure out what to do with AI in the classroom. He believes instead of cheating, AI might be able to help teach and learn responsibly. Responsibly means somewhere in the middle. It can't be like students don't write any homework and don't do any homework anymore. Uh, but it also can't be like, okay, we completely can't use these new technologies and are just ignoring them. So it has to be somewhere in the middle. Students should learn how to use AI to their benefit, Tian says, because the technology is here to stay. Janet Ujang Lee, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies tonight down around 32 degrees. Partly sunny tomorrow. Clouds show up later in the day. Highs in the low 40s. Rain tomorrow night mixing with some snow on Friday. No indication yet of just how much. 46 degrees now in Boston at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Elizabeth Bain of Commonwealth Standard Realty, providing guidance and advice to buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. More at elizabethbainhomes.com.